Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by Oracle for Startups. Hey all, welcome back. Chris Jonu here, host of the Startup Grind Global Podcast. Yes, you are in the right place. And today we have a you know a chat with this really super interesting guy, Pete Newell, who is the CEO and founder of BMNT, an innovation consultancy and early stage technology incubator. But what is super interesting um, about Pete Aside from the fact that he's helping some of the world's largest organizations and and Silicon Valley startups, is his background and how he kind of became a pioneer in innovation as a colonel in the U.S. Army and essentially being he was he was in charge of of uh, the U.S. Army's rapid equipping force was essentially an innovation um, lab that was you know, in, in the middle of, of a war, in the, you know, kind of deployed in the middle of a battlefield where they'd have to rapidly prototype and deploy innovation and, and you know, um, look at the evidence, look at the data and, and, and you know, refine these products and, and do it as quickly as they could. The pressure was on because, you know, lives were on the line. And uh, all the learning that came with that and um, he now incorporates into the, to his um, um his H4X method and his um, uh, hacking for defense program that he had uh, founded with um, Silicon Valley legend Steve Blank, and um, and and now um, primarily with BMNT, the innovation consultancy. So an incredible story, a great kind of uh, perspective on innovation from the from the front line, and and kind of how that translates to helping the fastest growing companies in the world. Hope you enjoy it. Cheers, Pete. Welcome. Um, yeah. So just just by way of background, Pete, can you just um, introduce yourself and BM BMNT, please? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you know, long time ago in my career, I I was running the Skunk Works for the U.S. Army, and as I got ready to retire, I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, and yeah, you know, experienced the frustration of you know, having problems out on the battlefield, but not being able to find um, the the right solutions or the right technologies fast enough to do what I wanted. And what I found myself in D.C. was spending a lot of time talking to hundreds of people and, and wasting a lot of time to get to the one or two that I needed. Mm-hmm. When I got to Silicon Valley, I found that it was kind of the opposite. There were lots of people who had great ideas but nobody in the government who would show up and actually um, explain the problems to them in in a manner that made sense to them. So, you know, essentially BMNT, you know, grew out of the desire to close the gap between the two. We thought initially that the gap was really a Silicon Valley side, that they didn't want to work with the government and blah, blah, blah. And it found that the that really wasn't the case. You know, the real issue was uh, folks in the government didn't understand the business model in Silicon Valley. 
didn't speak the same language, and they didn't understand what their value proposition was for being in a valley. So BM&T as a company evolved out of that um, with efforts to, to help um, the government become uh, better customers of the valley and then of the technology world at large. And over time, you know, we have built uh, uh, a series of platforms and, and methodologies that, that we've been able to put together on what I would call the operating system for innovation that now very large organizations are using to, to guide their own innovation efforts. Absolutely. Um, so that's the premise for BMT, and we'll definitely dig deeper into all of that now. But um, I wanted to just to go back a little bit through your, through your background to kind of uh, give the listeners a bit of context for who you are and how you got there. Um, can, can I start, you know, I often start with the question, is there a mother or father that was an entrepreneur? Yeah, it was neither. It was actually uh, my great grandfather. Right. You know, I would I would call my great grandfather a crackpot. He was uh, <laughs> at first he was an architect. Yep. He you know, um, he designed buildings and, and built you know major portions of uh, or designed the buildings for you know major portions of a a couple of cities. And and at the time he was pretty wealthy. Uh, he invented and patented things like uh, a staple. Right. Uh, he was a fantastic photographer, traveled the world, um, did lots of things, um, owned you know boats and airplanes and, and cars and cars that that um, look like boats. It, it's just he, he did lots of things. So I, I call him the classic crackpot. Um, I share a lot of his, uh, believe it or not, I share a lot of those tendencies. And, and and was that something you just wanted to emulate? Was he someone you spent time with and wanted, you know kind of took you on that entrepreneurial path? You always wanted to be able to create yourself. Uh, how, how did it kind of? Now, now looking backward, no, I, I I didn't. I don't say you know the times in my life where I've looked at something and said you know that's that's not right. There's a better way to do this, and I've just gone. But. I spent 32 years in the military where, you know, the idea of being an entrepreneur is, is, is not something that gets you promoted and, and keeps around and endears you to people. Mm-hmm. So I would say I was probably suppressed for a good 30 years. So what, um, where, where, you know, where did the drive? Yeah, sorry. No, I, it wasn't until I got to the rapid equipment force where, yeah, you know, I was essentially handed the keys to a Ferrari uh, and innovation hubs, mm-hmm. and and given the authority just to travel the world looking for problems and the budget and and people. And my job was to find solutions and then help scale them. Um, I discovered in that process that you know one, I was pretty good at it, and then I developed this passion for uh, helping extract. Uh, um, hard, nasty problems from places where people needed the most help and boiling them down into something that other people would understand and then engaging people and convincing them that these were important things to work on, getting them to fund them, and then actually delivering them. So I, you know, in a little over a two-year period at the Rapid Equipment Force, I invested a billion and a half U.S. dollars uh, 
testing and prototyping probably 600 different things is you know in response to different problems and eventually deployed 130 into theater uh, and eventually transitioned you know 20 of those things into you know program for record some of them just created a program for record so you know from an investment standpoint i got a great track record yeah absolutely. Uh, government dollars where where government dollars didn't used to be able to do that um so i, I do have uh, a bit of a reputation for it uh, i have combined that um that experience now with uh, a lot of knowledge and a lot of coaching in the commercial world to, to um tying things together so they make more sense from uh from the perspective of a, a commercial business or a startup right and um and this sounds like so can i just go back a little bit so what was the what was the initial um you know uh, draw to the to the to the military how did you how did you end up you know start in the military <laughs> were you yeah were you a bit um, of a troublemaker when you were younger and you know i'm just curious to hear how it all comes together yeah i needed to eat um i was a college student and i was a, a really poor college student i, I mean i yeah, I would say I'm reasonably intelligent. I just, I hated sitting in a classroom um, and I hated the way I was taught. So, you know, obviously my grades weren't the best. Uh, I actually dropped out of college for a while. Um, I enlisted in the Army National Guard as a means of, of getting money to go back to school and found that I was attracted to the fact that um, my time in the National Guard presented me, I, I gained some discipline, mm-hmm. which, which I badly needed. Um, but I also found that I was attracted to solving different problems constantly. And, and you know, in, in your field, every day was different. Uh, so it just, it, it turned into a great niche for me, you know, as I was trying to finish up college. And then, you know, as I got to the end of, the, the end of college and, you know, I got uh, commissioned into the active army, I really didn't have a plan. And I just, you know, I, I said, I want to be a ranger. I want to be a paratrooper and, and I want to experience some great things. And, you know, eventually that turned into a, a lifelong sprint. Mm-hmm. So I, I, all I can say is I had no plan. I, you know, I, I joined the military because I needed money and I needed food and, and it just turned out to be a good thing for me. And then how did, how did like the, you know, the, the rapid, rapid, uh, equipping force come into play? Was it just that, you know, you were obviously, you know, trying to solve these problems out of frustration and they, you know, and, and actually solving them. And, and then you were kind of handpicked for this role. How did that kind of evolve into that, you know, heading up the innovation side of things? Yeah. So, um, the probably two stories here. One is, is how I got there and the other is how it came about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll start with, with how the ref came about. Um, when we first went into Afghanistan, the, there was a guy named Bruce Jetty, who is now an assistant secretary of the Army. But Bruce was a colonel and kind of an anachronism in the Army. He was, a, he was an armor officer, a tanker, and he also had a PhD in, I think it was mechanical electrical engineer from MIT. Wow. And, and he was essentially an Army scientist. And... And at the time, nobody in the Army knew what to do with him. So they eventually assigned him 
to be an advisor to the vice chief of staff of the army. You know, the number two guy who really runs the army on a daily basis. Um, so Bruce um, one day was in the vice chief of staff's office, you know, right after we went into Afghanistan, and on the the vice's desk with this, you know, front page picture of a, a grizzled, you know, special operator up on, you know, the Tora Bora cave complex. And in his hand, he's got a grappling hook. And what this guy was doing, he's using a grappling hook to throw into the cave and clear the booby traps, you know, right. just, just like we've been doing for 500 years. Mm-hmm. And, and General Cody, who was the vice at the time, looked at Bruce and said, you know, isn't this just, this is such a magnificent army. Look at this guy, how brave he is. You know, this is the bravest army we've ever put on a battlefield. And, you know, Bruce was a colonel, and Bruce had realized, I guess, at some point that he was never going to be promoted again. And so he spoke his mind, often. <laughs> um, and, and he looked at the general and said, yep, bravest army ever, also the dumbest we've ever put out. And, and of course, you know, the general had to peel himself off the ceiling um, and looks at Bruce and finally said, you know, what do you mean? And Bruce says, you know, we should be cleaning that thing with a robot. Yeah. We've been doing this for 500 years. And so the general looks at him and says, listen, don't look at me like I'm stupid. I, I have asked everybody in the Army and the military, all my scientists and engineers or whatever, and they say it'll be five years before we can put a robot on a battlefield. And Bruce literally looked at him and said, bullshit, I'll do it in 90 days. Nice. <laughs> so Bruce got booted out of the office um, and told to be back in 90 days to explain how he did it. And unfortunately, you know, found himself in the hallway with no budget, no mission, no office, no people, and a really pissed off general that, that he had to go back and report to. So long story short, Bruce did it. Um, he, he, he worked with a couple of civilian companies in Boston took a couple of robot systems in Afghanistan. They worked beautifully. The special operators eventually said, thank you, Bruce. Um, we don't need you occupying our helicopter seats anymore, but by the way, we really the robots with us. Um, so Bruce went back and it kind of laid it out. The Bruce's reward was uh, a $16 million budget and a mandate to do it again. And what the vice said is, you now work for me and your job is to go find problems like this and get the shortest, fastest possible um, commercial-based solution you could find and get it into the fight. Right. Um, by the time I got there, I think I was the fourth director. Um, REF was 120 people, $160 million budget. And was was working all kinds of crazy things. Education has definitely been disrupted. But can one little startup influence the future of all virtual learning? And if so, how? Let's find out. Hi, it's Mike Stiles, and this is Meet the Startups for the week of July 29th, brought to you by Oracle for Startups. In-person education is rolling along, virtual and distance learning is developing, but still not widely deployed by schools and colleges. Then, along comes COVID. Talk about getting disrupted. Overnight, the need for virtual education explodes. Amazingly, there's no standard for collaborative online education that meets most institutions' requirements. 
As always, the forward thinking was happening at innovative startups like EduBook. EduBook has an interactive, user-friendly virtual education platform with familiar social media-like functions that gets remote learning up and running quickly. But to service the sudden new need, EduBook's founders knew they needed a strong partner by their side. After migrating to Oracle Cloud, CEO Mohamed Diab said, we're already seeing an improvement in performance and about 10 times cheaper costs than with AWS. This week, we asked EduBook's Mohamed Diab what education will look like in 10 years and how tech is going to change it. The education will be reformed to be more student-centered. Video learning, AI, chatbots, and personalized learning are examples of the tech and concepts that will shape the future of education. That's our focus as we scale. Is your startup ready to disrupt or respond to disruption on the technology side? Having the right partner in place is a big part of that. We invite you to take a look at Oracle's startup program at oracle.com startup. Could you just explain to me, uh, are you just walking into this lab and it's all this crazy stuff being experimented? Can you just kind of give me the visual on this thing? That's, that's pretty much it. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, it's the networks you build and you kind of understand, you know, what people are doing and where they're at. Uh, I spent a lot of time at MIT, a lot of time at Stanford, and a lot of time in, in labs where people do crazy things, talking to people about the problems I was trying to solve. You know, and the beauty of it is that they didn't always try and sell me the tech that was in their lab. They pulled out napkins and cards and they were pointing me in all kinds of directions. Mm -hmm. um, what I found, though, that wasn't a good methodology for extracting problems and curating them for the point that we actually knew what the problem was and then prioritizing them so that we could communicate them in a rational manner to people. Um, and that, you know, that process is what I brought to the table when I formed BMNT. And then when Steve Blank and I hooked up, we took that process and coupled it with a lean startup. And we realized that, that he and I have been doing the same thing for 10 years. Yep. Um, he just articulated it differently. Enough, but when we drew it up, it was the same stuff. But we ended up bolting the two methodologies together. And the more we did, the more we learned about what the operating system was that actually um, ensured the flow of innovation from where you source things like tech and ideas and problems and people to where you actually transition things to program to record and what the, the steps are in between, what the decision points are, and what the methodologies and activities that support that. And, and was this the, the, you know, the same kind of scenario that you'd get in the corporate world where the army was spending millions of dollars and, you know, deploying something that, you know, wasn't necessary? Like, and then you're, you know, coming, coming back with this kind of lean lean approach? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the military's problem was they had a pension for deploying the right things too late. Uh -huh. um, yeah, and of course, you know, because things change so fast in the tech world that um, even though you think you're, you know what you're doing and what the right thing is, by the time the government process actually irons out and deploys something, the tech was obsolete. Or in worst cases, um, what they thought was a problem was, was actually a symptom of another problem. And they ended up treating the wrong thing, which just wasted a lot of money and time. They never really solved the first problem. Right. And did the, um, 
did this kind of involve, um, you know, this kind of the talk with customers only? These were like people on the front lines experiencing these problems, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I would say part of the challenge was, you know, always um, getting getting the the language and the emotion around problems and issues on the front line articulated and boiled down so that I could vividly get somebody excited about it in the corporate world mm -hmm. uh, while also understanding what their business platform was and what their product was and, and how I could motivate them to steal left or right in order to provide an asset to us. And was the, were these, I'm just, you know, trying to, you know, put this all together in my head. So was the, I'm assuming there may have been some walls that you would, would hit with um, the interviews given the chain of command and stuff. Did, was that, was that, how do you kind of dig deep past, oh, there's no problem here when they, you know, they're in front of their boss kind of thing. How did you um, get, you know, get down to the real information that you needed? Yeah, I would say it was a trial and error. Um, one of the things you had to learn early on is, is, and as Steve would say, you have to get out of the office. And in my case, that meant I had to put people on the forward edge of the battlefield, not just passively asking, hey, do you have any problems? But I put them in places where they could actually observe what was going on so they could actually anticipate the issues. Um, at one point, I actually built what I would call mobile 3D printing labs. And actually took a shipping container and, and put an air conditioning and power system in it, uh, communications platform, 3D printers, 3D scanners, uh, CNC milling machine, a scientist, an engineer, and, a, and an instrument, uh, and made it so that it could be picked up by a helicopter and moved around the hotspots on the battlefield. Incredible. Um, I didn't do that so that they could 3D print parts and solutions for people. I did it so they could prototype the issues and enhance our understanding of what was going on. And we literally got to the point that they could work with somebody and build a technical data package and, and, you know, at the end of the day in Afghanistan, hit send, send it back to us in the States where we could send it to a, you know, contract manufacturing firm someplace who would look at it from a manufacturer's standpoint, make a couple of changes. As we were going to bed, we'd send it back to Afghanistan and get there as they were getting up in the morning. Incredible. They would hit print and validate the, the part or whatever still worked. And would give us a thumbs up, and at which point, you know, we could do distributed manufacturing across the United States. And rather than have one person print or build a thousand or something, we could have a hundred print whatever. Um, but the idea was to use those guys on the forward edge of the battlefield to anticipate the issues that were coming, mm -hmm. so that we had a better chance to look at the technologies and things that were out there, and and actually have a series of MVPs of prototypes that we could quickly move to the forefront um, and point out a problem. Right. So it's almost like this, this quickly uh, creating like a macro view of, of the entire, of all the possible problems, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a constant macro view. Um, I actually use a tool, I call it the Ripple, it's a REF integrated priority list. Um, so we, what we did is we, we took in all the problems that we found and all the problems that were identified to us by other people and aggregated it in a database and, and started um, forming groups 
And with those groups, I was able to say, you know, this um, combating um, IEDs that are targeting dismounted infantrymen comes up in six different problem sets. So now I have a major problem that is, you know, my number one priority for a long time was um, combating dismounted IED attacks. Yes. And when I went to somebody and said, my number one priority is this, they say, that number one priority is supported by 46 separate problems. Here they are, and here are the parameters of the problems and how they present themselves, and some of them are what I call credit card problems. You just buy something and put a Band-Aid on it because it's going to change too fast. And, and others were, um, holy crap, you've got to come up with a ground-penetrating radar that's six inches wide that somebody can carry. Um, that, and we, that when you do that as a constant process, um, you get a much better feel for the flow of technology onto and off of the battlefield. Um, step two of that process, though, we've then been able to take that priority list and translate it into language that made sense to people in the civilian world. And even better yet, translate it so that you were looking for places in the civilian world where there was a similar problem. Right. That then would lead you to the group of people who could most be agitated to work with you to solve your problem. I hope all that made sense. It, it did. Um, and it's, it's amazing that you're thinking quite commercial early on. There was, well, there's two things for me. I'm kind of like, and I'm trying to think about the difference between, um, you know, Steve's theory, where I don't think it really has the macro bit, right? It's like, the, but you have the, the macro view and then the customer conversations and you're kind of cross-referencing them against each other. Yes. Yes. Constantly. Incredible. Constantly. I mean, you're always checking yourself. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I call it the decay rate. You know, the half-life of tech changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, you got a protagonist on the battlefield who's doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in many cases, because they don't have testing requirements and acquisition systems and other things, just they can put out these really crappy prototypes and whatever else and very quickly learn from them and do stuff that's hugely painful. They kill a lot of people that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be able to decide which of those things you'll never keep up with that you just need to pull out the credit card or do your best to provide something that that's constantly, it's never going to be a programmer record. Yeah. It, it's just, you're going to buy a piece of commercial tech and keep trying to get it. Yeah. Um, there are other cases where you can really tell it's like, all right, um, I got a major problem here and I can, I can put a bandaid on initially but I'm going to start working a solution to this, and I've got a, I got a one-year solution, and I got a five-year solution. Yeah. And the 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 commercial side of things, you know, and um, obviously it was good, so you could get things kind of you know mass manufactured because you knew what the, I guess the spec was for the for, but it also came with like you know you said what's the civilian problem and the way to kind of commercialize this is that because that would kind of feed back into funding the program. Uh, yes, absolutely. And then was, um, it, was it that thinking that ahead. kind of led to the, the commercial commercial side or, or like the, the corporate innovation side of BMNT kind of got you out into 
more of the corporate world, I'm guessing? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think, that, you know, initially we um, we started helping NASA government innovation sales get stood up because they, you know, we were several years ahead in our understanding of the environment. So, for instance, the Defense Innovation Unit, when they stood up in Silicon Valley, uh, we spent probably two years working with them. Um, but that has transitioned into lots of large government agencies who know they need to move faster, um, but have been unable to figure out how to how to change their business practices and processes and regulations, and you know how do they hire the right people and how do they train them and how do they keep them? Those are all issues that are part of the operating system. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we started seeing. Some of the same issues in large enterprise, you know, big, big commercial entities that that are now starting to start with some. Some of them were defense contractors, but some of them were just they're completely commercial. Um, we also started seeing, you know, defenses. Defenses got its own issues, but we started seeing the same thing in the environment, in health, in energy. And pretty soon, we were building platforms that that kind of did the same thing, but were, um, I would say, had a dialect that was tuned to their particular circumstances. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, so so kind of getting you having to get to common ground in terms of you know terminology and and stuff like that. The I'm just with the government side of things. And, you know, you're rapidly prototyping, you know, on the battlefield in like the, the heat of it all. But then coming back to the commercialization bit, probably hitting walls to your, you know, uh, to your point around, you know, regulations and stuff. How do you uh, overcome that frustration to keep, you know, pushing forward with stuff, you know, um, is going to make a real difference? Yeah, what I would tell you is... Um we're we're having success. I mean, it, it, when you start finding that it, 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 there's other people are starting to do the same thing you are, but but as your clients start picking up the ball and start doing, you know, a lot of the stuff themselves, and and you see your language now permeating their organization, you know, it's a personal and a professional um, uplifting moment. I think the. If there's a frustration, and I think you know, Steve and I are going to attack this one this year, um, is that there is a lack of doctrine or a common language for innovation uh, across um, military organizations or government organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what that means is you know, there are lots of really heroic people out there that are doing great things. There are a lot of one-off things, but there are also a lot of silos. Yeah. And... Um, decisions are largely made based on judgment, not on data, because nobody's defined the data they need to capture in order to make better decisions, because nobody's really tracking the decisions that people are making about what moves forward and what doesn't. So so we, in, being a team in particular, but, but also Steve Blank and I, um, are now looking at this, this common language thing, saying, you know, if you really want to get this right, there needs to be a doctrine for innovation within government organizations and large enterprise organizations that 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 makes it not just something that's done in a corner by a small group of people but helps 
it's the entire organization understand where they fit in the innovation process. Because it takes the entire organization at one point in time or another. Everybody has got to put their fingers on something if they want to see something go faster and bigger and better. Yeah. So the exact same problem corporate world's facing, really. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And so this is just a, it's like an entire transformation process um, that starts with common language in this doctrine, right? Um, interesting. And yeah, I mean, it, it's a cultural yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah it is, you know, I mean, cult, culture is based on common language. Mm-hmm. If you want to change the culture, you have to build a language around it. Yeah. And what are some? What are some of the? What are some of the wins? You know that you, you're kind of proud of along the way. Uh, know, you it's know, a, it's a big question. I know. <laughs> no, I mean there, there. I don't say so many of them. Um, you know, the best ones are when you know, for instance, uh, if you're familiar with the hacking for defense, the the academic course that we prototyped you know, five years ago at Stanford University was really a manifestation of of our work at BMT now going, okay, how do we apply this in the academic world to train people that will eventually infect all these organizations with people who think alike? Um, That course that we piloted five years ago was taught in 30 universities in the United States this year. It'll be taught in seven in the UK. Uh, In the past, it's been taught in Australia. I don't know how many are doing it now. Um, we've also converted it to, uh, you know, we just lost uh, two hacking for oceans classes in the United States that are going after uh, ocean environmental issues. That sounds good. have been hacking for energy. We've done diplomacy. Um, you know, it just, we know that the, the, the methodology and the language that we built around the process of doing this works. It's a discipline. And we know that it's highly attractive to people who want to do this. Um, we know that um, those people are highly sought after by government agencies and you know large defense contractors and other people. So for us, that's a massive success. Even better uh, when members of Congress and the Department of Defense very publicly say that that hacking for defense is exactly the type of program that needs to be scaled nationally, if not internationally. And they're actually putting money against it. Um, I personally love seeing some of the small companies that spun out of this, um, whether it's something like Capella Space, which is doing synthetic aperture radar for um, low-Earth orbit satellites. That's really the data side of it, uh, which has never been done before, but, but is doing you know, great things for the government, um, as well as you know, there's one called Learn to Win, which came out of our last Stanford class that is helping people democratize um, training and learning to the point that you can rapidly push something out of mobile, which which right now is hugely in demand. Um, you know, there are you know, dozens, if not a large number of, of very precise tech things that have been solved over time. Um, there are many cases where organizations have grown up based on a pilot or something that we ran for somebody that are now actually expanding those efforts elsewhere. So it's just, there's a long line of them. Right. And, and, um, so I think it's, you know, it, it sounds like it starts with education. Um, and you know, I love these kind of hacking for defense. So, so I think, so getting kind of, 
getting everyone on board in a kind of grassroots scenario and then hoping that kind of, you know, puts your ambassadors through the organization or, you know, the, 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 the transformation takes place from there, right? It's a, um, and, yeah, and what would, yeah. what would set apart like a, what are some of the, like the, the key ingredients that would set up a de- hacking for defense apart from like a, um, a startup weekend or whatever? Is it, is it more corporate focused and like, a, you know, how, how, what's the, is it just bringing in some of your IP and perhaps you don't want to talk about it, but I'm just curious as to, um, how this mm-hmm. is, um, no, so, so I give you a, actually two. I don't want to say two different versions of it. There is an academic version of it where um, we bring in problems from the government and curate them and boil them down to something that makes sense that that clearly you can put in a classroom. Yeah. Um, the class is actually a flipped class. There's, there's no teaching. It's actually the students. Um, there are no case studies. The students are the case studies, and we essentially have these problems, and the students. Um, take a problem, form their own teams, and they come at it like a startup. So I've got this problem, and if I solve this problem, then I potentially can start a company or something else. They're not all tech problems. Some are policy issues. Some are business process issues. Um, But what's attractive to the students is that it's the one class they'll take in an academic career that lets them use every tool and every connection they've made while they were in college to work on a real problem with real people that gives them real experience that will get them a real job in the modern world. Um, hugely attractive to students. Um, the government folks who are providing the problem are attracted by the fact that the students are crushing their problems. Yeah. They're not coming back and saying your problem is not what you said it is, it's actually yes. Then here's the data that goes behind it. So <laughs> these student teams produce the best market research in the world. And they do it in 10 weeks or 14 weeks based on how long the class is. Um, we have, you know, sponsors like Lockheed Martin, right. who sponsors the Stanford and University of Texas Austin courses, uh, who do it because they're really interested in the kids that are coming out of the course. Yeah. But that, it, it's a people thing to them. Uh, and then finally, the universities are looking for a means of a different way of teaching that's more attractive to the academic community, their alumni, students, and whatever else. So it's really hacking for defense is the embodiment of, of meeting the value proposition for four different sets of people um, in the same classroom. Yeah. Um, and yes, you know, we've produced 19 companies in the process, of which you know, six, six are still out there and, and actually growing and you know, taking any good money. Um, Interesting enough that the students who come through the class, 60% of them stay engaged with their government problem sponsor afterward. That's fantastic. And, and, that, and so as a civics course, it's great because these, these kids, they learn about how the government really works and they learn about the pain points and they make personal connections that are highly valuable, you know, whether they're working at Nissan or Honda's innovation space or Tesla or, or anywhere else. These kids are still coming in and, and saying, hey, I, I, I'm still talking to my sponsor, but hey, I, you know, I, can I help with another problem someplace? This is what they want to do. Yeah. Um, the, at the, you know, say in the corporate world, we do the same thing, but it's more tightly compressed. 
Um, but the same, it's the same thing. It's how do you teach people in a corporate environment to do this? Um, so whether it's a government agency or large corporations, we have created a platform that allows them to take their own problems on, train their own people, give them experience, give them coaching, and actually produce results over and over and over again to, to the point where they're able to build their own platforms and take it on themselves with less and less help from us. Um, finally, I, I think what falls out of all this, and the best analogy I can give you is there is an operating system for innovation just like there is for uh, Apple. You know, whether it's iOS or um, Windows or whatever else, the operating systems on our computers are designed to make sure everything works together. And that regardless of what app you build or what program you build, as long as you include the right things, it will work seamlessly and pass data back and forth, and it will allow the user to produce really beautiful results. Um, what we have learned and starting to apply as a language is called H4X. Yep. And the reason it's H4X is we get tired of building H4X. Hey, you know, defense, energy, environment, oceans, we've got to put X there because um, it applies to everything. This operating system that we have built and articulated and designed um, it does essentially that. It takes, um, I don't care if you're running a hackathon and doing Scrum and Agile or Waterfall or whatever else, we can explain to you where all those methodologies and activities fit, what produces what kind of data that you need to produce the analysis that helps the senior leader make a decision that moves them from one silo to the yeah. And just, just but actually enhance the decision making process. So H4X becomes the operating system for innovation. And um and just 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 switching gears for a second, um only because I'm you know I'm mindful of your time and I wanna wanted to cover this one too. The the hacking for oceans. So just what's the, the premise around, you know, kind of environmental problems? What's the what what's um yeah. yeah, yeah. we had a, uh, in this case, it's funded by a, uh, a family office, private equity folks, who um, were interested in innovation related to the health of the ocean. Yeah. And, and we've been asked, you know, several times for, uh, to take on environmental issues because they, they do have some defense implications. Um, but in this case, they said, you know, can you, can you build a class and a platform around ocean um, issues and ocean technologies? Uh, and, and I don't want to say it took a little while, but we had to find the right universities to launch it from. So we we spent a year um, rebuilding the uh, the courseware and, and how we put the class together, and then recruited uh, one of the deans from University of Cal uh, California at Santa Cruz and at Scripps. And we're launching the pilot with those two schools. Now, we already have interest from universities in Norway, uh, Chile, uh, and some other places that are largely ocean-bound. That, you know, that there are issues out there that they want to do the same thing. They want to attract bright young men and women to some of the really nasty, hard problems in the world and get them excited about working on them. Incredible. Look, um, I'm... I wanted to say, you know, thank you for your time today, Pete, and um, just just for the listeners, how how they best 
be able to get get in contact with you and and uh, you know what's the best business that uh, you know the the best um, what's the ideal customer I suppose for you and and um, what, what's plans for the future? Yeah, sure. So LinkedIn is probably the the fastest easy way to find them. Yeah, my LinkedIn profile. Yeah, and actually my email address is in the profile. So, um, you know, the fastest way to shoot me a note. Um, you can also go to um, bmnt.com, yeah, peruse the website. Um, if you have ideas or thoughts, uh, you can email uh, innovation at bmnt.com. Um, and I actually get a copy of that email, but it also goes to you know, my team that, that's, that's building and sorting tools and methodologies and things like that. So multiple ways you can get to us, you know, depending on what you're interested in. Incredible. I hope we see this, uh, you know, the hacking for oceans in Australia sometime soon. I think it's another cool one to, for us to get behind over here as well. Um, thank you for your time today, Pete. Yeah, actually, I'd love to get back to, to Australia again. So anytime there's significant interest down there, somebody wants to do it, I'm, I'm in. All right, we'll try and give you that excuse then. awesome thanks Chris thanks mate thank you for tuning in to keep up to date with all things Startup Grind visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you until next time chase the vision and keep hustling